I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Today, we're talking to Fred Tauber, the Zoltan Cohn Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Boston University. Fred recently wrote a book called Immunity, the Evolution of an Idea. His book seeks to transform our understanding of what immune systems do. The older and still prevalent idea is that immune systems are the deciders. When we're still embryos in the womb, our immune systems decide what is us and what is everything else. It's an us versus them view. Fred argues that immune systems do much more than that. They mediate communication among our own cells and other species like bacteria, fungi, and viruses. Fred's new and unique view treats immune systems much more like the overseers of ecosystems than as xenophobic warriors. His view leads to really interesting and different conceptions of what self means, and so what any individual is. Welcome to Big Biology. We're really, we're really excited to, to talk to you about immune systems and what they do, and especially how it gets to this concept of uh, self and individuality. But maybe before we go too far down that philosophical road, let's start with just a fundamental primer on what immune systems do and, and maybe what your new view is in light of how they have been thought to work. Sure. Uh, well, let's give a, a brief textbook uh, overview of immunology. Uh, basically, the immune system, and we're talking about uh, higher vertebrates, uh, humans, mice, uh, dogs, what have you, uh, is divided into two categories. One is called natural or innate immunity, and the other one is called adapted immunity. The innate immune system is more ancient phylogenetically. Uh, it includes uh, phagocytic cells, cells which eat things. Uh, they eat bacteria, they eat immune complexes, uh, they are responsible for uh, responding to injuries like burns. They're also very active in repair mechanisms. They are generally the bedrock of what is called the inflammatory response. The other arm of the immune system is acquired. It is made up primarily of lymphocytes. Uh, these are cells which uh, circulate in the blood just like the uh, phagocytes do. Uh, they comprise uh, two classes, B cells and T cells. B cells have a set of functions which include the production of immunoglobulins, uh, which are circulating proteins which identify targets. And T cells uh, serve as cell-mediated immunity. Uh, they attack malignant cells. They deal with viruses and uh, other microorganisms. And these two uh, cell types, the T cells and the B cells, work harmoniously together uh, in affecting uh, the uh, acquired immune response. So that when there is, let's say, an infection by a bacterial pathogen, um, it will take uh, 24 to 48 hours before the adapted immune system kicks in. And the first line of defense would be the innate immune system. So you said uh, phylogenetically that the innate immune system is more ancient. So how, how long ago are you talking about the, the animals acquired adaptive immune systems? Well, the innate system we see already uh, in sponges. Uh, animals without a gut have these phagocytic cells and they served as nutrient uh, organs. In other words, they would feed uh, the sessile cells 
uh, and it was observed uh, at the end of the 19th century that these cells not only uh, were feeding cells, uh, but they were seen around infections. And a Russian embryologist named Eli Mechnikov uh, identified these cells uh, as defenders, as defenders of an uh, infected animal. Um, and, and the issue here is simply that uh, these are primordially very, very ancient. The lymphocyte appears only uh, with the vertebrates. And immunoglobulins, the product of uh, lymphocytes, B cells in particular, uh, also appeared about the same time. There mm -hmm. are progenitor recognition cells earlier in phylogeny, uh, but we don't identify them as immune. Uh, the basic textbook notion of immunity is uh, that the immune system differentiates self from non-self. So the idea is that the immune system ignores the self and it attacks other or the foreign. Uh, and this uh, dualistic approach has dominated immune theory uh, throughout the 20th century. Uh, the problem with uh, this model is that no one has been able to agree on what the self is. Uh, there are at least six definitions uh, of selfhood, uh, and given the aberrations of the immune system um, activating itself against uh, self-constituents, we call that autoimmune disease, but it's also a normal function. The human body has a library of autoantibodies, and these antibodies are generated against self-constituents, and they are useful in uh, the surveillance process, uh, and we're not quite sure what their full function is, uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that the idea of the self is extremely useful as an idiom. It's heuristic, it's powerful in terms of differentiating activation from non-activation, and it is unfortunately a dogma. And dogmas have a way of restricting uh, thinking about complex systems, and uh, I believe that the self has been valorized against a more uh, nuanced view of immune activation. You know, the self, from a philosophical point of view, is a moral category. You know, it's about our own identity. It's about how we identify ourselves and we identify ourselves as agents that do things, that have values, et cetera, et cetera. It turns out that cells and molecules are not selves. They are uh, cells and molecules. And it's, it's, it's simply a extraordinary metaphorical application of identification. I mean, it's, uh, it, it is very interesting. I mean, immunology mm -hmm. is uh, a, a very rich metaphorical science because it cuts so close to our bone, to our very selfhood uh, in the sense of our self-identification. If we are sick, don't you often think, let's say if you ha have a cold, that you've been invaded, you've been violated, mm -hmm. and, you have cancer or and, and you're going to fight it off. Exactly. You know. And people with cancer, I mean, that's the paragon case. I mean, the, the, the notion of, you know, this thing growing in me, uh, this foreign entity uh, has to be expelled and killed. Yeah. Uh, it's attacking our very core 
notion of our autonomy, our individuality, our independence, and all the rest. Yeah, it's 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 intimate. Immunology is an intimate science. <laughs> <laughs> so, can, can you sort of lay out what the older view of immune systems has been over the past oh, 70 or 80 years and, and how that's changed recently? Okay. This actually is simple. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, in the 1880s, uh, microorganisms were identified as pathogens, and this was the birth of infectious diseases. And obviously, if a uh, human is infected, uh, the host defense, the immune system, uh, was studied uh, as a clinical arm of medicine. And this clinical orientation around host defense uh, dominated uh, immunology until just after World War II. During World War II, uh, burn victims who needed skin grafts uh, were rejecting those grafts. And it turned out, of course, that this was immune-mediated. And so the whole issue and problem of transplant biology emerged uh, in the 1950s. At about the same time, uh, autoimmune diseases were discovered. Uh, these are, this is when the immune system attacks normal uh, organs, like the kidney or the joints with rheumatoid arthritis or skin diseases, what have you. And as you note, each of these three medically oriented disciplines, which invoke the immune system, uh, support the clinical orientation of the immune system as a defense or aggressive system against some kind of target. By the 1990s, ecologists were beginning to look at the immune system as an important aspect of fitness and of ecological balance. And a very slow revolution uh, is taking hold where the clinical orientation is now being supplemented by a more complex ecological orientation. And I can speak, if you like, for a moment uh, about how that manifests in the clinical domain. That would be great, yeah. So sure. the ecological point of view. Yeah, there's the general um, uh, military metaphor of the immune system defending the body uh, includes complete eradication of the pathogen. You know, it's sort of like uh, uh, magic bullets which are going to repel and then kill the invader. Uh, about... 10, 15 years ago, a new concept was introduced in infectious diseases called tolerance. Uh, it was borrowed from plant um, immunologists. Uh, tolerance is a very important word in immunity. Uh, it's the idea that the immune system is not attacking the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the target, uh, but rather to tolerates it in a very uh, uh, benign fashion. And the, the, the bottom line here is that we would want to uh, potentially reduce the virulence of the pathogen, not necessarily the pathogen itself. So if a pathogen is releasing toxins, uh, those could be neutralized without killing the pathogen. Uh, there are ways of uh, limiting the inflammatory response of the, of the uh, animal uh, against the pathogen, and the inflammatory response... Uh, can sometimes lead to very serious 
um, side effects which injure the animal. And if one could reduce those, uh, uh, those side effects, then the infection, uh, the pathological effects of the infection would be minimized. Mm. So this notion of tolerance uh, builds on the idea, an ecological idea, of, of balance. A balance, uh, uh, as you were, uh, uh, mutual annihilation balance, uh, uh, the idea of trying to have uh, some kind of peaceful coexistence between the host and the pathogen. And this idea, of course, grows out of this entire excitement about the microbiome and symbiosis. Mm. So, so can you give an example of a pathogen that uh, normally coexists peacefully with us if our immune system is doing its job? And, and I'm thinking, well, well, I'll leave it to you to propose an example. Well, it turns out that if you uh, uh, culture uh, the nose of your children, uh, you will more than likely find Staphylococcus. Uh, Staphylococcus uh, normally is a is a pathogen if it's not under control or in balance with its microenvironment. Uh, but in most cases, uh, these uh, these children are going to be completely asymptomatic. And I could go through a whole host of of organs: uh, the vagina, the sputum, uh, the ear, uh, what have you, uh, where you find pathogens uh, sitting there. Uh, under culture conditions, but not having any effect uh, physiologically. Mm -hmm. and, and what is the immune system actually doing to make them be asymptomatic? Well, it's not clear if the immune system is ignoring them or is simply um, uh, allowing them to uh, reside without uh, incident. It's very important to understand that immunity is a spectrum of responses leading from tolerance where there's no response whatsoever uh, to a very mild response to an all-out attack. So the spectrum of responses uh, is highly variable. Uh, and you can see this very simply uh, uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, someone uh, in the family has a, uh, a bacterial infection. It may well be that uh, the infection will cause an acute illness in one individual, and it will be subclinical in another, mm -hmm. even though the, uh, the pathogen could be cultured. Uh, the variability, the biological variability is extraordinary. Did, did, are there examples or, or sort of ways of thinking about how the same pathogen in a different host is going to have a completely different outcome? I mean, is that about genetics or the age of the individual? What, what's driving that big difference in outcome? Well, there are many, there are many factors, obviously. Uh, the genetics uh, can be highly uh, determinative. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's just a subject with endless possibilities. But from our perspective, that is the immune perspective, what's very interesting is the experience of an individual uh, will determine the immune response. If an individual has seen a, a bacterium, a pathogen before, the response will be very rapid and it could well prevent any kind of clinical manifestation. If it's a first-time infection, then the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, disease that will be caused by the pathogen <clears throat> excuse me, will be very aggressive and it will take time for the immune system to mount an appropriate response and repel that pathogen. So the experience of the individual is very important. Uh, the age, uh, the other 
factors of the environment may be uh, operative. And uh, there's so many different variables that we really don't have any predictive models as to how an individual will respond other than the fact uh, whether he or she has been infected previously. Right. And that's uh, sort of the principle of, of how vaccinations work and why we use them so much, right? We're sort of taking advantage of that prior experience. Precisely. Precisely. All of the vaccines work on that principle. Uh, the, uh, they prime the immune system with uh, the noxious antigens, the ones which will evoke a response. And when the organism appears, voila, the immune system sees it, recognizes it, and destroys. Hmm. Can, can I ask a complimentary question here, which is if, if a person is exposed to a new bacterium, how does the immune system decide whether it's benign or potentially pathogenic? Ah, excellent question. Uh, evolutionary history is a, is a, is a simple answer. Uh, certain bacteria uh, have uh, universal markers. Uh, these markers are recognized by the innate immune system, and they go into action immediately. And that triggers then another immune response. Mm. So in, in a sense, they, there's a, a library of, uh, of immune responses uh, to a known set of pathogens. Uh, one of the uh, devastations of influenza uh, uh, epidemics is precisely the fact that they develop uh, novel antigens which are not recognized and the immune system has to then mount essentially de novo, a defensive response. I see. Is it that these microbes are often sort of battling it out or, or, or somehow coming to relationships within us and our immune system is to some extent a, a, by, a bystander being exploited by, the immune, or by, by these different microbes for their own interests? Well, this is uh, at the heart of my interest. First of all, Lynn Margulis was a close friend of mine. We were colleagues uh, at Boston University in the late 1980s, um, and we collaborated on a number of projects. Let me give you a very brief overview of Lynn's view of biology. Uh, first of all, she, most people regard her as one of the key theorists of evolutionary th theory of the late 20th, uh, 20th century. Uh, she proposed um, a symbiotic theory of evolution where uh, primitive uh, microorganisms would uh, coalesce, essentially, and would split their functions. And it was later proven that mitochondria, chloroplasts, and flagella uh, are all products of such symbiosis where uh, let's say two bacteria merge. Uh, one of the of the pair produces uh, the energy uh, uh, engine and the mitochondria, and the other one produces everything else. Um, and she was obviously a uh, uh, an expert on uh, symbiotic relationships, and I think that's why the two of us got along so well because the immune system uh, was just beginning to be recognized as important for the establishment of the microbiome. The microbiome is uh, in the headlines today because it's it's becoming clearer 
uh, each month that the microbiome has an enormous effect on the physiology of complex animals. Uh, it is said uh, that there are a thousand times as many uh, number of uh, uh, bacterial uh, elements in our bodies as there are human cells. That's really not important in the numbers game. What is important is the number of different species uh, which are lodged in our bodies. And there have been recent reports uh, with numbers as high as 10,000. That's mm -hmm. staggering. I mean, I, you know, I, I had to, I had to look, I had to look at the papers more carefully uh, as to how that could possibly be true. Uh, but those estimates seem to be reasonable. Ten thousand different species. Let's say even a thousand uh, is an extraordinary number, and they are everywhere. Uh, most, uh, the best studied area is the gut. Uh, where uh, bacteria are important in digestive processes, in making uh, vitamins, uh, in maintaining homeostatic balance in the gut, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the immune system uh, is instrumental first in establishing the microbiome. And when I say that, what I mean is that the immune system, through its tolerance, allows these bacteria uh, to reside there unmolested. Uh, and then in the ongoing um, uh, life history of the animal, uh, the microbiome uh, is maintained. And it turns out that the microbiome changes. It changes with age. It changes uh, with diet. It changes, uh, let's say, with uh, interventions like antibiotics. Um, and it, obviously it changes with uh, uh, GI diseases, uh, diarrhea, what have you. Uh, but it's clear that the microbiome is having effects uh, far from its, from, uh, uh, its restricted uh, life cycle. Uh, it turns out that the microbiome seems to have some direct effects on neurologic function. Uh, and we're referring to uh, gut bacteria, uh, which uh, secrete uh, uh, various humors, which appear uh, to affect mood. Uh, they may affect cognitive abilities and memory, uh, and this is extraordinary. And it all goes to say that everything's connected to everything else, and the immune system uh, is instrumental in maintaining a balance of these uh, myriad species of bacteria uh, in the body. The the kind of microbiome that I know the much about the, the most about is the gut microbiome and. Um, there's, there's been a bunch of recent studies that have shown that the gut microbiome varies a lot from uh, one person to another in some cases and from one culture to another. So, so does that imply that, that there's some hidden hand of immunity that's controlling those differences or is it another set of factors that's, that's leading to those differences? Well, I think it's pretty plain that we don't know but I can suggest some possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, the variability in food, diet, is obviously crucial. The variability of the immune system's experience in one individual versus another is going to have a big difference. Um, the age of the individual uh, is obviously very important. Uh, but there's also something which I find extraordinarily interesting. There was a hypothesis published last year by Robert Root Bernstein in Bioessays, 
and I wrote a short comment about it. And essentially, he proposed something called holo immunity. That's H-O-L-O immunity. And the hypothesis is as follows. The microbiome shares antigenic sites with the host tissue, with the host animal. In other words, the reason that the micro, that the pathogen, that, excuse me, the, the bacterium is accepted is that it looks like self. It looks as if the uh, bacterium is a constituent element of the animal. And the immune system then uh, recognizes it as its own and thereby does not respond. Now, if that's correct, we know that all of us have different self-antigens that the immune system recognizes. And if, in fact, um, the microbiome varies, it may easily reflect these uh, shared antigens. Uh, The data is tantalizing, uh, but it's only a hypothesis at this point. Mm, Interesting. Uh, And I wanted to ask a the sort of reverse question about causality in the connection between microbiomes and immune systems. So, so you made the point that microbiomes influence a lot of our physiology and perhaps neurobiology. Do, do the microbiomes themselves influence the immune system? In other words, is there sort of, you know, that arrow of causality going the other direction uh, between the two? Excellent question. And uh, guess what? I don't know. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone knows. Uh, you know, it's what's extraordinary when you look at the literature is the uh, inability to standardize good tests uh, to measure uh, these responses. Um, there are just not enough laboratories working on the problem uh, to achieve a critical mass Uh, of decision-making as to how uh, the immune system should be evaluated uh, uh, relative to all of these other factors. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're really at the dawn, uh, in my opinion, uh, of of this field of eco-immunology. You you talk about an interesting perspective, and I, I don't remember if it, it was your conviction or uh, sort of putting together other other folks' theses, um, that when cells started getting together and dividing labor for breeding and finding food and digesting and such about a billion years ago, um, before that everything was unicellular, and then we sort of end up with these scenarios where, where things are, are playing nicely with, with each other. You argue that, that immune systems might have first appeared as ways to kind of ensure that multicellularity happens, and then later they were co-adapted to dealing with pathogens. Can you say anything about that history and what data support it? Oh, sure. Uh, that's how I, I started my, uh, uh, my career in, uh, as a critic of immunology. It begins, again, with Elie Metchnikoff, uh, M-E-T-C-H-N-I. K-O-F-F, Eli Metchnikoff, a Russian, um, who was an embryologist. And uh, shortly after Darwin published Origin of Species, Metchnikoff began his embryological investigations, and he was looking at uh, transparent organisms uh, under the microscope. And he saw these phagocytic cells, which I mentioned earlier, uh, roaming around uh, these embryos. And he was fascinated by them. He, he wondered, what, what were they doing? 
And eventually he figured out that they were, um, as it were, policemen of the developing embryo. And I'll give you one striking example. And of course, there are many. Uh, when the tadpole uh, morphs into a frog, the phagocytes go and eat the tail of the tadpole. Uh, and this is precisely the uh, paragon example of what Metchnikoff argued uh, was the role of inflammation in general. Inflammation for him was a developmental process of restoration. So if there was an injury, uh, the phagocytes would go and eat the uh, injured t tissue so that regeneration could occur. And that would occur with burns or with inflicted mechanical injury or what have you. Tumor cells would be destroyed by phagocytes. And as the developing embryo is uh, uh, essentially um, developing from different cell lines, he postulated uh, that the phagocyte was maintaining harmony or trying to maintain harmony on these competing cell lines. In other words, Metchnikoff took Darwinian struggle and put it inside the organism. Now, the only reason this makes any sense is because it's before uh, the genetic revolution, right? I mean, Mendel wasn't rediscovered until 1900, and there was, uh, there was uh, nothing to uh, prescribe an architecture, if you will, uh, for the developing embryo. So that's why Metchnikoff uh, came up with the ideas that he did. The notion of competing cell lines was reactivated by Leo Buss, B-U-S-S. -S. Uh, he, he is or was a professor at Yale, and he wrote an extraordinarily interesting book published in 1987 called The Evolution of Individuality. And he basically uh, revived Metchnikoff's theory and uh, looked at colonies of, uh, of organisms like, uh, al like uh, coral and uh, suggested that there was competition between the cell lines and that the, uh, that the organism had to come up with uh, some kind of mediating system uh, that would arbitrate between these cell competitions. And that is the origin of immunology, uh, because Metchnikoff turned that theory uh, towards pathogens as a defensive system. Hmm. I could go on and on and on <laughs> about this, point, but I don't know how much you want to know. No, well, that's great. But so um, the, the thing that, that's hanging me up, and, and I hope you can speak to it, at the very first getting together of these cells, the division of labor, I mean, presumably pathogens would have already been around. So at what point did the phagocytes and such get co-opted into defense? Was that immediately or what does the evidence say? Was it later or how did that work? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, it seems to me that the phagocytes were probably doing their immune functions from the very beginning. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to say much about this because our knowledge of pre-vertebrate immunity is so primitive, uh, so minuscule, so uh, sketchy, uh, that it's very difficult to answer that question. Let's switch gears now and talk about the role of immune systems in individuality. And, uh, you know, if I just think of it from a... Um, a, a layperson's point of view, I would say, 
you know, most people have this very strong sense of what is them and and what is not them. So, so how do your ideas about how the immune system functions, how, how do those change our concept of what is us? Yeah, that's a fundamental question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I've written two papers with Scott Gilbert, um, which basically argue that individuality is a anthropocentric idea. Uh, it's what we have the ability to count. So if you've got uh, uh, some cars in a parking lot, you can count them. Uh, if you have some chairs in the store, you can count them. Uh, but the question in terms of humans, uh, biology, what is an individual, is very, very difficult to ascertain. Because we would not be individuals without our microbiome. So how many genomic uh, partners do we need in order to survive? Uh, which introduces the whole question of fitness and the whole question of adaptability and the whole question of what is the unit of selection uh, for evolutionary mechanics. Mm -hmm. And it seems obvious at this point that humans, in terms of their own strict uh, genome, uh, is not enough as a selective unit. Uh, the selective unit must be more complex than that, and it includes this variety of organisms that live with us, which allow us to live, which allow us to adapt, which allow us to uh, maintain a, uh, a balance within our own ecologies. And so where do you draw the line between us and them? Uh, from a biological point of view, it seems to me that we can, we can put artificial lines of demarcation, but from an uh, evolutionary point of view, I don't know where that line is drawn. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as you were talking, I was thinking about um, you know, medical cases where there are people who are immunocompromised in some way and that they're sustained in highly – uh, azenic environments, you know, where they try to reduce exposure to all environmental, uh, you know, bacteria and viruses and fungi. So, so what, what happens to those people who lack a large fraction of the microbiome that the rest of us have, or, or, you know, I guess, I guess a more fundamental question is, do they even lack the microbiome or is it just, uh, you know, uh, a hopeless task to make somebody azenic? Well, if they're eating, they have a microbiome. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, uh, it's impossible to imagine uh, individuals without any, without any microbiome whatsoever. Mm. Uh, I think what, we're, what is happening to those people is that they're being protected from pathogens. Uh, not necessarily from uh, microorganisms. Okay, got it. Hmm. Interesting. So you talk, you talked mostly um, with regard to individuality um, as an evolutionary biologist, but I mean, it really intrigues me, uh, maybe from a psychological, sociological perspective, the implications of of one's decisions um, maybe being motivated by something riding around in or on us. Um, is there? You mentioned uh, evidence that mood and, and behaviors and such are, are influenced, but are you aware of, of psychologists digging deep, deeply into the microbiome and, and sort of thinking about 
I don't know, something as, as grandiose as, as consciousness and how it relates to individual or sort of the, the, the role of these microbes? They're beginning to. Um, it's, you know, everything is dependent on one's own experience. And it seems that there's a lot of interest in England in particular on this matter. Uh, there's a society which is coordinating various activities in this regard. Um, but obviously, we, d- we are beginning to pay attention to the microbiome in a selfish kind of way. We, we're prescribing probiotics. Uh, oh, I have to tell you, getting back to Mechnikov, he was the one who introduced yogurt to France. Uh, wow. <laughs> he, he, he made the observation that lactobacillus was a benign bacterium, uh, that the people in the Caucasus Mountains were living a long time and eating a lot of yogurt, and he drew the inference. Um, and he thought that if he could eat enough yogurt himself, uh, that it would replace the noxious bacteria in the gut, uh, which were releasing uh, poisons into the body and causing senility. And he thought if people ate uh, yogurt in quantities uh, large enough and early enough in their life cycle, that they would live longer. In any case, that's just an example. But that's an example from 120 years ago. That's amazing. So, so this is really a theme that's that's taking over. But I, I wonder what what you think, or, or if you're aware of, of progress on the kind of Again, the psychological side of using tolerance as a way to combat disease. So, I mean, that's that's a great example with regard to the gut. But in general, the use of, say, co-infections or or intentionally exposing yourself to something that whereas uh, maybe it it isn't intellectually attractive to think about, oh, I'm adding some extra passenger to my experience. Um, If you're better protected against that, it, it does make some sense, right? All right, Marty, I'm going to say something fairly outrageous, okay? <laughs> I like it. We like outrageous. Okay. Uh, since the 1990s, there have been culture critics. And I'm not talking about bacterial cultures. I'm talking about social cultures uh, who have used the immune system as a metaphor to describe Western society. And they've made the argument uh, that the immune system conceived as a defensive system Uh, in a metaphorical contest of war with the pathogens uh, is extremely attractive to the American mind, let's just say. Uh, And they argued uh, that, in fact, this represented uh, an aggressive uh, uh, metaphor which was not necessarily correct. And they said, look, the immune system is also tolerant. Uh, It tolerates difference. And so here you have this alternative view of society, which is pluralistic, multicultural, uh, and they were advocating uh, a different use of the immune system as a metaphor of tolerating difference. Now, I am not going to postulate that this major shift that I'm proposing for uh, towards an ecological orientation for immunology has a uh, multicultural uh, social basis, but the mindset uh, may well be that in the globalization and the push for tolerance of uh, uh, pluralistic uh, uh, ideas, uh, even in this age of Trump, uh, is taking hold, and scientists perhaps are more uh, susceptible to thinking in this way than previously. Now, that's just a, a, a hypothesis. 
a, a rather shrouded one, uh, but it's intriguing. Well, and the and the fact that we do have evidence now, I was thinking specifically of of the sort of ingestion of of helminths or their eggs or something like that to be able to attenuate or otherwise cope with allergic symptoms. And, and I mean, these these practices are becoming more and more common. So, as they sort of um, you know take hold and and the evidence builds of their of their value, you know, that now we have data to work with that this isn't just a sort of attractive idea but something that in practice makes a difference. There's something uh, I have to uh, add about my characterization of the immune system. Almost all studies in immunology are based on a very activated immune response. In other words, the immune system has been characterized in its fully activated state. And that makes sense because in the host defense model, you want to know how the immune system is responding. But it turns out that most of the time, in fact, the vast majority of the time, the immune system is in its so-called resting or quiescent state. It's surveying the body. It's turning over uh, its own cells at an extraordinarily rapid rate. Uh, it is simply in a... Uh, surveillance mode, and it processes dead cells, perhaps, uh, and maybe some injuries and maybe some tumor. Uh, but basically, the immune system is quiet. And we barely have scratched the surface as to what the architecture and regulation of such a quiet system might be. We know a lot about the activation. We know virtually nothing about the resting state. And that's the state of tolerance. Fred, I wanted to pick up on uh, something that Marty alluded to, which was um, allergies. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are interested in allergies because they suffer from allergies. And there's been a, a rise in allergies, uh, you know, among Americans generally. So so does your do your ideas about immunity have anything to say about um, what we should do about allergies? Well, take antihistamines or <laughs> the, the, seriously, allergies, um, I don't know if anyone else thinks this, but I think of allergies as a form of autoimmune disease, uh, a dysregulation of a normal immune response. The normal immune response, let's say to ragweed or to cat dander, uh, is to ignore those antigens. Uh, but in allergic individuals, they've been sensitized, and when they see those antigens, uh, they respond with an acute inflammatory re reaction, and uh, we suffer the symptoms. Um, you know, the truth is I haven't thought about this very much, uh, even though I've done basic research in, uh, in allergy. Uh, I've done it under the old paradigm. Uh, you find a drug or develop a drug, uh, which is going to interfere with the activation cascade or block the mediators that cause the symptoms, and you've taken care of the clinical problem. Uh, the question as to why uh, the sensitization occurs and how it might be balanced in a, in a more proper way has only been approached, at least from a clinical perspective, by desensitization. That is, by the slow introduction of the offending antigen uh, with increasing doses 
and having the immune system adjust to seeing that antigen and not responding. Uh, it turns out that the data on that is quite mixed, uh, and it's not clear that it works all the time. Mm. So, so what do you think about uh, the hygiene hypothesis for the rise of of allergies? And and I'll just you know a quick anecdote. My father grew up on a a farm in Oklahoma with no running water and they used an outhouse, you know, for the first 10 or 12 years of his life and had a bunch of farm animals around that they slaughtered themselves. And so he was undoubtedly exposed to a whole array of, of things that, you know, I was not exposed to in my more protected childhood and he has no allergies whatsoever. It's, you know, it's, it's irritating almost that he has, he has nothing that the sort of, you know, now normal person, uh, does. So, so do you think there's something to this hygiene hypothesis? Well, correlation is not causation, right? Yep. And, um, it's interesting. I just gave you an N of one anecdote. So, yeah, you know, sure. exactly. You fed me the line. Yeah. Um, and all I can say is uh, it makes sense. Uh, it's consistent with a lot of stuff. Uh, proving it is another matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what you know what we should do other than letting our, our children eat things off the floor, which we already do, <laughs> and and all the rest of it. I'll tell you what I am worried about. It. Uh, you go into uh, into WalMarts or Kmart's or the grocery store. And they've got these uh, sanitizing dispensers, so that when you touch the uh, handle of the of the uh, of the cart, uh, you want to sanitize your hands either before or after. I can't imagine a better way of selecting pathogens. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's it makes so little sense. We're worried about using antibiotics too much, and now we are selecting. Uh, uh, organisms uh, by cleaning our hands, even by you know in WalMarts, uh-huh. it, it 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 strikes me as as silly, uh, but there we are. So let's stick on the uh, let's stick stick on the the topic of sort of the implications of how we've done um, immunology. You know, you you've you put a lot of emphasis rightly on the activated state being the thing that we've focused on so far. One of the implications of that, but what are the implications of working on well-fed, bug-free, little furry white things that live in cages and never see the sunshine. I mean, what does that mean for the history of immunology? Well, obviously, uh, it was important to reduce the number of variables uh, as quickly and as easily as possible. So you have these inbred mice. And of course, uh, that so-called model system is the bear the, the bear scenario? I mean, it it can't possibly uh, reflect the full complexity of immunity, um, and it gives us a distorted understanding. Just like the fully activated state gives us a false notion of what is tolerance and how the immune system normally functions. Um, the problem when you look at the eco immunology literature is exactly. Uh, what the laboratory mouse uh, uh, was built for. There's so many variables uh, that most studies uh, have to be done on populations. Uh, and when you're looking at that level, then you can't really look at the fine tuning of the immune system uh, in its operative state. And what we're missing is that intermediate uh, niche of research, uh, which will allow us to characterize the immune system 
uh, in a uh, more normal setting. Um, the immune parameters which are being used, and I think I mentioned this before, are rather primitive and gross and non-standardized and variable. Um, and so the science is, uh, as I said, uh, still in a rather primitive state. Right. The implications for, for people in particular, I guess I should have been more specific. I mean, the, yeah, clearly doing immunology, it's a, it's a very tough science, requires a lot of reagents and you know, things that are very difficult to do on uh, rhinoceros in their, in their natural habitats. But the fact that humans, you know, the experience of a typical human is nothing like a, a lab mouse. Um, do you, where, where do we draw that line? I mean, to, to what extent do we want to use the lab mouse or, or how do we want to use lab mice research to think about the human condition and, and all of the variables that we're exposed to? Well, I think the success of uh, biomedicine uh, is testament to the, uh, uh, the pragmatics and the effectiveness of, the, of that lab mouse, right? I mean, uh, it's hard to argue with the success. Um, what you and I would like to see, I think, is a better intellectual understanding of, uh, of immunity and, and how it functions. And it's only in that kind of basic research will we begin to see opportunities for application. And what I am saying is that we know so little uh, that it is, it's, it's almost a fantasy to, uh, to expect that we can draw much, uh, uh, much uh, that we can draw many conclusions. I would say that the one area that is receiving uh, its due is in tumor immunology. Uh, obviously, it is mostly focused on advanced tumors, but there is some significant research being done on trying to find um, tumors in the early stages and how the immune system regulates uh, malignancy. We know from autopsy studies that if you live long enough, you're going to have tumor cells in your thyroid, your prostate, your lung, wherever, and they're living there in a symbiotic condition. We need to understand that much better. That gave you pause. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for Art to jump in. I, I, I didn't yeah, want to take no, all the no, questions. No, we do need to understand that better, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to go uh, philosophical here for a second. So at the very last chapter of your book, you call a, a new biology, question mark. And I find that intriguing. And I guess I would have thought that you would have called that last chapter a new immunology. And and I think your implication is that 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 this view of immunology that you're developing has something to say about biology more more broadly. So so what do you think that that view is? Okay, there are two parts to my response. Uh, the first and the most direct is that here we have an example where systems biology uh, is absolutely necessary. Uh, if in fact we agree that the microbiome and its relationship with the immune system, and its relationship with other uh, systems, uh, the neurologic system, what have you, is important. How can you study that in a dissected mode? How can you study one part of it without understanding uh, the regulation, uh, the inputs, as it were, um, that determine the, the, the immune response? And so what I'm saying is basically systems biology 
is the new biology. Uh, it's not my uh, terminology. It was introduced uh, 20 years ago when systems biology was beginning. And so far, uh, there's been a lot of work, uh, but the fundamental dynamics, the, the understanding of causation, which is nonlinear in these complex systems, uh, has not really given us uh, the promissory note that, uh, that we expected. And it's going to take uh, more sophistication and of, of computers, uh, com- uh, computation, and it's going to require better data. Again, the standardization problem is real. So that's one, that's one aspect of the new biology. So, so, Fred, before you go to the second one, can you just explain a little bit more what systems biology is? I think the difference between, if you want to call it traditional and systems, might be lost on a few of our listeners. Okay, I'm sorry. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, reductionism, the idea of taking a complex uh, process and breaking it into its elements and then putting it back together again, uh, is analogous to taking a clock and breaking it apart, uh, or taking it apart, not breaking it, and putting it back together. In biological systems, that has not been very successful. Uh, We have lots and lots of elements, but it's extremely difficult to predict from those elements how the system as a whole works. And so systems biology is oriented uh, at a high level of analysis of taking uh, huge amounts of data and processing it uh, in such a way that a holistic uh, picture emerges. And this requires uh, data uh, if we're talking about the immune system uh, in the context of the microbiome of understanding Uh, all of the various parameters of immune function, understanding the mediators which are involved, which include over 100, uh, over 20 different cell types, uh, all different degrees of activation. I mean, how many parameters is that? That's, and the permutations therein. Then you throw in uh, the inputs uh, from infection, just plain infection. Uh, with one microorganism, uh, throw in all of the prior uh, immune data uh, from previous infections and all the rest of it that we talked about, and predictive outcomes uh, should be forthcoming if the systems analysis is correct. There have been a few cases where uh, some uh, predictive value has been obtained, and so there's promise that this is going to work, But, as I've said before, uh, the data uh, is simply uh, enormous and extremely uh, variable and makes it very difficult to do uh, these kinds of studies. That's great. Thanks. Okay. So the second new biology uh, pertains to a – you're right, Art. It's more philosophical. I don't see the immune system as most people do. I see it as a cognitive system. I see it as processing information. And the reason I think that is I'm drawing the analogy with the uh, neurosystem, uh, which uh, in its first uh, iteration is a perceptive system. It processes perceptions, sensory data. uh, It goes up a hierarchy, uh, and it's uh, um, uh, synthesized. And then the neurologic system decides what to do. And so if I am scratching my nose, uh, it's because of the perception of an itch. 
and I'm sending out signals to my finger uh, to scratch my nose. The immune system is completely analogous. It's perceiving a universe of antigens, of substances, which it will either recognize as friend or will tolerate it as irrelevant. And that information gets processed through a hierarchy. And the hierarchy then makes a decision as to whether an immune response will be initiated, what kind of immune response, the degree of activation, et cetera, et cetera. So looking at the immune system as an information processor primarily, as a cognitive system more generally, uh, gives us, a, a, I think, a much better overview of what immunity is. Well, that's really neat. Where does the, uh, where's the immune system's brain in that process? Is there something like that? There is a, a Frenchman described this as a mobile brain, <laughs> a mobile brain. And I, and I like that because I think that really does capture what, what the immune system uh, is doing. Uh, it's important to note that phylogenetically, the neuro and immune system share um, many messengers, uh, receptors. Uh, they have uh, developmental origins from uh, uh, which are shared, and there's obviously an extraordinarily rich interdigitation uh, uh, of the two systems. You can do uh, uh, conditioning. Speaking of allergy, you can do conditioning um, uh, to, uh, to deal with an immune response, um, which is extraordinary. There, there's an old experiment where somebody was extremely allergic to roses. They p took a photograph of a rose, stuck it in front of him, and he started sneezing. <laughs> anyway, the immune system viewed as a cognitive system is an idea which was born in the late 1980s in Paris. Uh, at the Pasteur Institute, there were a group of scientists, Antonio Coutinho and Francesco uh, Morella, uh, who initiated this idea with Iran Cohen in Israel. And already in the early 1990s, they were talking about the cognitive uh, system uh, to explain immunity. So it's not my idea, but I've developed it for them. Right, and the linkages with the brain I and mean, the, the sort of conditioning of immune responses, that's a really rapidly growing discipline. I mean, I did, you know, this field of psychoneuroimmunology the intimate connections between the brain and the immune system and even the endocrine system. There's quite a lot of research going on there, and it seems to be promising in a lot of ways. Yeah, the, that, that field is exploding, absolutely exploding. Mm. If, you, if you look at the uh, citation uh, trajectory, it's been exponential since 1990. That wraps up our discussion with Fred Tauber. We covered billions of years of conflict and cooperation, and our immune system sits at the center of it all. So how do we talk about our own evolution when so many other things are living inside and alongside us? We'll tackle these questions in future episodes, but if you have your own questions or ideas for topics you'd like to hear us cover, please send us a message through our website, www.bigbiology.org, or through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can get all of our episodes on our website or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbean. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website. 
Thank you to Jana Wiegand for writing and production help on this episode. And thanks to the rest of the Big Biology team, which includes Matt Blois, our lead producer and writer, Gerard Sapes, who edits our scripts and leads our fundraising efforts, Haley Hansen, Victoria Doloff, and Chloe Ramsey handle our social media channels, and Steve Lane and Roman Boisseau manage our website. Music on today's episode is from Poddington Bear and Three Chain Links. 